All right, today we are in Romans 6, 1 through 11. We're deviating from Matthew uh, because of the resurrection. And it's uh, always interesting to me that some of my brothers who are uh, PCA pastors will say that you're supposed to celebrate the resurrection every week. It's like, yeah, but can't we emphasize it one? Is it wrong to preach a sermon on the resurrection uh, on this day? To that I say, no. Uh, similar to the way that Paul says here in Romans 2, uh, verse 2, by no means. So, um, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, that, all, that the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Father, thy word is truth. Sanctify us by thy truth. Open our eyes to see the truth. Help us to behold it, to believe it, and to begin to act upon the truth. Transform us by the renewing of our minds, conforming us to the likeness of your dear Son, that he might be the, first, the firstborn of many brothers. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Uh, this week I went through my DVD collection and uh, I found the Passion of the Christ and I pulled it out. And I intended to watch it and failed. <laughs> Many other people watched it this week. I saw their Facebook posts. And one of the things about that movie, that the reason I wanted to watch it was in a sense to be reminded as to the focus and emphasis of that film. Because it, if I remember correctly, having watched it years ago, the focus was on the physical distress that Jesus underwent in his crucifixion. And the, the crucifixion and, the, and the, uh, the scenes prior to his crucifixion where Jesus is beaten are long and drawn out and they're in slow motion as if that was the main thing that was going on. That movie doesn't focus on the meaning of his death and subsequent 
resurrection. And it is to there, to that, that Paul now begins to speak in his gospel uh, to the Romans, so to speak, this epistle that is focused on the gospel to the church in Rome. He died on the cross, Jesus did, a painful death, executed as a rebel. But so were many other people. Why is his death different? Why is it that we celebrate his death and not the death of the others who also were crucified? Well, if we had been going through the book of Romans, and that's part of why we read from chapter 5, we see that in chapter 5, Paul compares and contrasts Adam with Jesus. Because both of them are representatives or heads of two covenants. And we all have died, Paul says, because of the sin of Adam. His sin was just not for himself, but because he was the, re- the covenant head or representative of that first covenant of works, uh, that his actions were imputed or reckoned or accounted to every other human who was born by ordinary generation. Adam represented us all. And therefore, all were guilty and condemned with him. Now, Some of you might not like that. Some of you might think that that's fairly unfair. Uh, That you had no part in choosing Adam to be your representative. That perhaps maybe you could have done a better job, you know, I don't know. Or someone else that you might have chosen might have done a better job. But we recognize uh, that we really ultimately cannot argue with this system because it is the foundation of the same system by which we're saved. In other words, oh, we cannot have salvation in Christ if we reject the reality of condemnation in Adam. That's where Paul goes, essentially, in Romans chapter 5. Paul explains uh, what Jesus' death means for those who trust Jesus as their covenant head. Uh, that just as the imputation of Adam's sin came up, comes upon all of humanity, this new humanity and Jesus Christ has reconciliation with God, uh, the, re- the forgiveness of sin, because they are in Christ who worked for them on their behalf. And that's sort of where we pick up now, in Romans 6, Paul says that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. Now, I want to remind us, maybe it's been a while since you've read Romans, but Paul has spent three plus chapters developing the idea of salvation by grace through faith. Paul is not to be taken in any way to imply that somehow now it is accomplished in baptism. Okay? So, what Paul is saying is that baptism represents or signifies and seals what has been done for sinners in Jesus Christ. It's a picture of the gospel that they can see and recognize that calls them to believe. That's why our confession of faith says that baptism is a sign and seal in part of our ingrafting into Jesus Christ. 
In other words, it is God's promise to save us, those who believe in Jesus Christ, but save us by grafting us onto Jesus Christ. Some of us have no idea what that ingrafting kind of thing is, and so we've got um, our little diagram here. This is how you graft one branch into a vine. And what you do is, uh, you see... Underneath that red arrow, there's a notch that is made in the vine, a notch that corresponds to the point of the branch that you're going to ingraft. And the, the idea is to connect them freshly so that the sap of the vine begins to feed what the branch that you've just grafted into there. So you want to make sure it's deep enough so it gets to the heart of the vine so now it can begin to receive life from the vine. And so we have been grafted onto Jesus Christ so that we can receive life from Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is getting at here. That's what baptism is partially indicating for us. And the, the place he goes in particular is the reality of we have been baptized into his death. The death that Jesus died for sin, for our sin. Having been united with Him, Paul says, we died too. Now, you didn't physically die, but because your representative died, you died. It's important for us to keep this in mind, that our union with Christ is so profound that Paul is basically saying that we were executed for our sin in the execution of Jesus Christ. That you've experienced the penalty of your sin because you are united to Christ who died to bear the penalty of your sin. It's not just something that happened for you, but Paul is saying that by virtue of our union to Christ, it is something that happens to you. This is why later on he can say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because you have already experienced the condemnation, you have already experienced the judgment in Jesus Christ, in His sin-bearing work. It has taken place. This is why Paul can say in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. That's how profound our union is. It's more profound than the union of a husband and a wife, which is intended to point to that same union. But it's not only that we died with Christ, we're not just baptized into a de His death, but Paul says, we were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death. And not only were we united in His death, but we're united in His burial. Now that seems a little strange for us, but Paul wants us to know that you were not just dead, but you were dead and buried with Jesus. Jesus, as our uh, confessions, our, our creed rather than the Apostles' Creed points us to, remained under the power of death for three days. And while he was under the power of death, 
we were under the power of death because we were united with him. Jesus was not dead for a few moments and then resuscitated. Um, Heard the story of uh, one of you folks this past week or so who had had an operation and died on the table. And fortunately, obviously, resuscitated. That's not what happened with Jesus. It was not he was dead for a few minutes. Jesus was dead for three days. Sure dead. Completely dead. Not mostly dead. There was no doubting he's dead because he was in the power of death. But as we saw in those songs, that the power of death could not constrain him with regard to the resurrection, but I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Dead. Buried. Again, Paul, in case you missed it the first few times he said it in the, in the course of these 11 verses, we were buried, therefore, with him. Oops, sorry, wrong verse. Our old self was crucified with him that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now, it's interesting. It says the old self. Uh, the, the word there is anthropos, that, that nice word that we get anthropology from, the study of man. And so the old man... Our old identity in Adam, uh, that person, okay, was crucified with Jesus. In other words, the person you used to be, if you're in Christ, was killed in Jesus. It was crucified with him. And one of these made up words that Paul uses sometimes because the Greek does not contain the word he wants to use, and so he makes one. It's rendered, this old man, this body of sin is therefore rendered powerless or inoperable is another way of putting it. It's no longer exerting authority over us, this old man, this old identity, this old person that has been crucified. This person who used to be a slave to sin is no longer operative tries to operate, but it has been brought to nothing. We are no longer slaves to sin precisely because Paul's logic is we died to sin. We no longer have an obligation to sin. There's no need that we have. We're not obligated to obey the sinful desires that we experience because we have died to sin in Christ. And so we died for our sin with Jesus is why baptism, I'm sorry, why his death is different. What's significant about his death. So, similarly, we could ask this question, why does the resurrection of Jesus matter? It's been established that Jesus was dead. It's been established that Jesus is buried in Paul's logic. But then he continues that Christ was raised from the dead. He didn't remain under the power of death forever, but he's been raised from the dead by the power of the glory of the Father. 
raised by the Father in His glory. He's also glorified, as we see in John 17, with the glory that He had before creation. The one who made himself nothing is going to be exalted and restored to the glory he had with the Father before he took flesh and blood to himself and became Jesus. Raised by the Father. Ephesians 2 reminds us that we have been made alive with Christ or in Christ by virtue of our union with Christ. We have been given newness of life or what is called regeneration because Christ has been raised from the dead. And so you, dead in your sins and trespasses, have been given life in Christ. This old man, this old self, This former slave to sin is dead. We we are a new person. We are a new man. We are a new self. We are one that is now not a slave to sin, but as Paul says later, a slave to righteousness. Meaning that we are dedicated to God in our life. He gets to that a little bit, as we see as well in Galatians 2.20, the rest of that verse. Um, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul says, I'm not just dead, but I'm alive because Christ lives in me. There's something here that's hard to express uh, for Paul, for us. It really is the idea of beginning a new volume in life. Not simply a different chapter, uh, as if you've gone from, say, single to married, uh, but a brand new, different, complete, different way of existence has taken place. Uh, Something like a new volume in your life story. Um. We are citizens of a new country. Uh, We've left the old country ruled by Adam, and now we live in the new country uh, that is ruled by Jesus Christ. And the implication of that is that we have no obligation to our former country. It may come a-knocking, but we have no obligation to it. Now, some of you here... Um, have been citizens of more than one country. Some of you have dual citizenship. Okay? That's permissible. Uh, in the context here, there is no dual citizenship. Okay? You can either be in Adam or in Christ, not both. Okay? And so um, when the tax man from England calls, you don't answer. You don't owe taxes to your former country. You only owe taxes to the country you are a citizen of. That makes sense. If they try to conscript you into their military, you don't have to go because you're no longer a member of or a citizen of that country. You're a citizen of the new country. And so a, a dramatic shift takes place in terms of allegiance. In other words, you don't dabble in Jesus Christ. 
the very nature of, of Paul's language here in Romans 6 speaks to the idea that it's all in or not in at all. Okay. There's no dabbling with Christianity. You are in by faith or you're not in at all. United to Christ, raised and exalted, the Father sees us as clothed in Jesus Christ. And I'll get to that again later. But what we see here is that Paul continues to press his, uh, his explanation of this. Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Uh, this Jesus has the power of an unending life. He has an everlasting life. Uh, we see Jesus taking this and communicating this in Revelation 1 when John the Apostle meets the glorified Jesus on the, and in his vision while he's on the Isle of Patmos. He says, Jesus says to him, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold... I am alive forevermore. And not only that, I have the keys of death and Hades. This Jesus lives forever to continue to serve as prophet, priest, and king in the Father's presence on our behalf. Paul says, not just that, Jesus is alive, but also we who have been united to, with Him in His death shall certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection just like His. We're going to experience a bodily resurrection just as He experienced a bodily resurrection. We're going to be raised to unending life just as Jesus has been raised to unending life. We're going to be raised to glory just as Jesus has been raised to glory. We're never going to die. And will be glorified. This leads John Newton to write in one of his sermons, for he came not merely to repair and to restore, but to exalt. And we don't think about this much, but we talked about it when we were in 1 Peter. We talked about it, I think, a little bit when we were in the Gospel of John, but that's the reality. Jesus has come to exalt us. We see this in Colossians 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. And it's not just that Jesus is glorified and, and you're there, but you're beginning to share in His glory. Similar thing in 1 Corinthians 15. We have borne the image of the man of dust, and we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. Glory we shall bear. He shared His death and His resurrection with us, and He's also going by virtue of our union with Him, share His glory with us at the resurrection. So in terms of that idea of being clothed with Him, uh, Jackie Robinson is famous for breaking the color barrier in baseball. And no one in baseball wears 42 because that was Jackie's number. And they honor Jackie by saying that that number no one wears except one day of the year, one day of the season, 
everybody wears 42. They're sharing in the glory of Jackie Robinson, even as they glorify Jackie Robinson. They're honoring him by wearing his jersey, his number. They're sharing in something of his glory by that. We're wearing Christ just as they're wearing his number. And so we honor Jesus by wearing Christ and we are glorified as well by wearing Christ. And so we rose to newness of life with Christ. So in light of that, how are we to live because we died and rose with Jesus? Well, let's get back to the beginning of this passage, that thing that some of you might have thought I've forgotten about. Okay. This begins, this passage begins with an objection to the gospel that Paul anticipates, most likely because Paul had heard it often enough. That every time he talked about salvation by grace through faith, he probably heard this objection. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? This is, this is a false gospel logic that Paul is uh, pronouncing here, right here. In other words, since we receive grace because we sin, shouldn't we sin so we receive more grace? Isn't that what you're saying, Paul? And Paul uses with what my Greek professor said. He responded, heck no. Because it's kind of a very strong word, by no means. May geneta. May it never be, as is how it's translated in some versions of the Bible. And that's how it gets it. But back to that objection. Does grace mean that I can continue to purposely miss the mark, that I can continue to purposely wander from the path, which is the idea of sin that is conveyed by that word. Can I continue in that? As if there's no repercussions. As, as, though, uh, as though sin is nothing anymore. Some people do assume that grace just means that we can sin without consequences. And when I think of this, I think of Larry the Cable Guy, because in his, his commercial for um, uh, Prizl, Prilosec, Prilo, the little purple pill, okay? one of the things that he says in his commercial for the little purple pill is, take this purple pill and you can eat what you want. Get rid of the repercussions of what you want. Now, there were times where I, and still are, where I suffer from GERD. Some of you might also suffer from GERD. Okay? An amazing thing happened when I began to reduce the portions I ate. I experienced less GERD. But Larry the Cable Guy here basically wants you to believe in a cheap grace sort of kind of thing that says you can eat whatever it is you want, you just deal with the symptoms by taking the little purple pill as opposed to changing your action. The gospel comes 
offers us forgiveness, but also brings about transformation. So uh, that it's not just Jesus covers over our sin, but Jesus also, in addition to that, okay, changes us. Problem is that some people don't want to be changed. I, I know I struggled with that when I was a, when I was initially uh, engaged with the gospel. I knew that there were certain things about my life that had to be changed, and I didn't want to change them, <laughs> or I didn't want for them to be changed. Jesus is just not is not simply offering forgiveness. He's offering something that includes forgiveness, but includes more. Not just justification, but with Jesus comes sanctification. The double grace that John Calvin talks about in his Institutes of the Christian Faith. Paul responds to this objection to his gospel by saying, How can we who died to sin still live in it? This is really the, the, the gateway of all theology. We've died to sin. And because we have died to sin, it is improper for us to continue to wander, to continue to purposely miss the mark. Now, that idea of dying with sin has been often uh, misinterpreted. Uh, it's not like death in terms of being unresponsive to temptation. We all know, uh, I imagine anyway, that everyone here experiences the power of temptation. It's not as if you came to Jesus and now you walk through the world and uh, you walk through Vanity Fair and, and nothing distracts you from Jesus. And there's no temptation that kind of gets your attention. Okay? That, that idea is not what Paul has in mind. It goes again back to the reality that our sin has been judged in Jesus Christ. And that way we are dead to sin. And since we've seen the deadly power of sin and what it produced in the life of Jesus Christ for us, it makes no sense for us to continue in it. To continue in this death-dealing way of life, Paul is saying. Why would we want that anymore? Because we've already experienced the condemnation that comes on some sin. We are new people who have a new country or a new volume of life, and it makes no sense to live in the old one anymore just as it doesn't make sense for a married man to continue to live as if he's single, or a soldier to live as if they're a civilian, or vice versa. It makes, it makes no sense for someone who is in Christ to live as if he's not in Christ. Sinclair Ferguson tells the story uh, of Augustine, who uh, years after his conversion was walking down the street in, uh, in Hippo, which is a city in North Africa where he was the bishop, and one of his former mistresses who was coming down the street and recognized Augustine and said, Augustine, Augustine, it is me. To which he replied, yes, but it is not me. In other words, I am not the man 
that you knew. I am a new man by virtue of my union with Jesus Christ. And so, (laughs) sorry, I want no part of you because you represent a, a very sinful time in life. And so it's here in verse 11 of chapter 6 that Paul issues the very first command found in the book of Romans. It's taken him six and a half chapters of theology to get to a command here. And he tells the Romans and us, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Consider ourselves. Think about ourselves. Reason about ourselves. This is the word that we get logic from. Use the logic that you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's similar to what he says to the Colossians in chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ Jesus, Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In other words, if you've really been united to Christ, then you're going to think differently and think about different things. And Paul here in Romans is calling them, commanding them, to begin to think of the logic of the gospel in terms of their everyday lives. so that they don't respond to the old stimuli the way they used to respond to the old stimuli, but they remember that they have died to sin and now they're alive to Christ. I think I have to remind some of my fellow elders uh, around the country. Um, I've mentioned before my frustration at times with the Facebook pages that we have. And this week it happened again where someone insulted me. I, I love to get insulted. That's less than gospel logic. That is a worldly way of arguing your point and what is supposed to be a discussion among brothers. We're not supposed to um, belittle. We're not supposed to um, slander and falsely accuse. And yet, this happens all the time online. You don't win your brother by making fun of your brother. Has, Has anyone ever won their brother because they made fun of their brother? I'd like to see the the hand in the air. Yeah? Okay, you're you're kids and you're just joking. (laughs) Have you won your spouse to your side in an argument because you belittled your spouse? Any, any, Any hands on that one? No. That's an application here, I think, of this. You don't argue like the old man in Adam, you're called to argue like the new man in Jesus Christ. And that just 
It's just one way in which it's supposed to explode into, in a positive way into how you live, how you approach things. But it doesn't happen unless you consider yourselves or reckon yourselves, think about yourselves as dead to sin and alive to God. You have to argue with yourself at times. You have to remind yourself who you are in Jesus Christ, that you've been united to Jesus Christ, and now there are certain things that are beneath you that are not appropriate for you. And to move on. But it's not just yourself that you have to reason and argue with, but at times you will have to reason and argue with your old master or your old temptations that come knocking at your door. In speaking about these things, Martin Lloyd-Jones mentioned the first generation of freed slaves here in America. And thinking about what it must have been like for them to be down in, the, in town, and here comes your old master, the one who used to beat you. Most of these people probably had fear that rose up within them. Perhaps a trembling. Is today the day that the Emancipation Proclamation has been undone? Is he going to come and carry me away and enslave me once more? We experience something similar to that when we experience our temptations. Or when, when the evil one comes a-knocking at the door and we wonder, uh, have, uh, do I still have any hope? Is today the day I lose my faith? Is today the day I just I shipwreck everything because this temptation feels strong and, and he seems stronger than me? Well, of course, he's stronger than you, but he's not stronger than Jesus. And just as those old slave owners couldn't take you away because they were not stronger than the government, so the evil one can't take us away because he is not stronger than the righteous one, our advocate before the Father. And so when you feel that fear, you have to argue with that fear. I am not a slave to sin anymore because I have, been, I have been killed with Jesus, crucified with Jesus, and raised with Jesus, and it has no hold on me now. Reason. Instead of jumping on the train of fear. And confusion. So the implication is that we are to live as the new person that you are in Christ Jesus. So the death and resurrection of Jesus change everything. All who believe in Christ, and I guess that's the first question, do you believe in Christ? Not just do you think that's a nice story, but are you abandoning yourself to Him and what He has done? Are you do you believe He is the Son of God and the Savior of sinners and the only one who can save you and you're trusting Him to do that? All who believe in Jesus that way 
have been united to him in his death, been united to him in his burial, and united to him in his resurrection. These are facts that you and I cannot see, but they are intended to influence how we live each and every day moving forward. We are to consider ourselves as dead to sin, no longer suitable for following down those wrong paths of life. We are to consider ourselves as raised to newness of life, one that's characterized by serving God as opposed to serving ourselves or serving sin. And for this reason, John Stott reasoned that holiness is a matter of the mind, one that is focused on Christ and what He did for us as the Savior of sinners. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that the resurrection is not just something that happened to Jesus way back when. But we are intended to believe that it happened to us. That we died with Jesus. That we were buried with Jesus. Suffering the full punishment of our sins with him. And then being raised with him. And Father, we anticipate the day when we will be raised bodily just as He was raised bodily. And, and then we will want to sin no more. Father, I long for that day. I long for the day when um, my brothers and sisters aren't slotted by evil people. But that You have come and set all things right and removed sin from us. Come quickly, Lord. Come quickly. Amen.